Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Chris Brickle, Associate Professor of Gender Studies and Head of the Department of Sociology, Gender, and Social Work at the University of Otago. He's here to talk about his new book, Teenagers, The Rise of Youth Culture in New Zealand. It's published by Auckland University Press in 2017. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks, Jason. It's great to have you on. So, Chris, you say that most general histories of New Zealand focus on adults and that teens appear only as minor players. What did, why did you want to write about teenagers in New Zealand? I think partly because of that, you know, in a, in a sense we've had a, a lot of histories in New Zealand of uh, gender and sexuality, a lot of histories of, of the indigenous Māori people, uh, but, but young people are a group, a uh, very significant group, we all were young once, of course, uh, who, who really hadn't had a systematic um, academic and historical treatment. So I thought it was about time, really. And what's interesting is that the, the book doesn't, you know, only focus on the 1950s and 60s when we think about kind of the rise of the teen. Or you go back into the 19th century. Why did you want to start there? I think one of the things I'm interested in doing in my own historical research is, is thinking a little bit about moving uh, back beyond the taken-for-granted kind of era in which a phenomenon is said to uh, to take hold in a sense. So everyone imagines that the teenager is an invention of the 1950s. I was interested in finding out a little bit about the prehistory of that kind of moment. In other words, that period of time, particularly in the 19th century, when uh, we didn't necessarily think there was a lot there to study because young people went straight from uh, their family situation into a work situation, or so we are told, and there was nothing there in terms of a transition, but actually there was. So partly it's my interest in uncovering the history that is not supposed to be there. So what, what are some of the similarities and what are some of the differences um, of the teenager experience in New Zealand versus, you know, the UK, the US and, and nearby Australia? I think New Zealand uh, both has had some similarities and also some differences. So you had uh, a distance from 
the international kind of currents uh, that were going on in terms of the kind of speed of, of industrialization, for instance, and the degree of secondary schooling. But there were also some real similarities. New Zealand drew quite heavily, for instance, on the kind of cultural forms, books, newspapers uh, from overseas. Uh, so ideas about what it meant to be young kind of percolated in from overseas from the 19th century on. Of course, that became much stronger through the 20th century with the rise of jazz in the 1920s, for instance, uh, and then rock and roll in the 1950s. But there's actually quite a long history of um, interconnections between international and New Zealand cultural forms, but also in New Zealand, the geography was somewhat different. So you had a, um, a long, skinny country, basically quite mountainous, not as easy to get around as some other uh, countries during particularly the early 20th century. And so you had emerged a, a bit of a distinction. I, I don't talk about this that much in the book, but between the young people who lived in the port cities, which were the, uh, the parts of the country through which sailors, clothing, cultural influences came in. And I, I do talk about that, but but what's less kind of evident, I think, in the book is that, in fact, uh, in those cities that weren't port cities, you, you didn't have that kind of influence. So, in a sense, that the, the ports were um, portals through which uh, forms of culture emerged uh, and diffused somewhat differently, depending on whether you lived by a, by a port or not. So, New Zealand was both kind of particular and also internationally connected, particularly through its, its port network. The book proceeds chronologically, so let, let's start kind of at the beginning. Uh, in the 19th century, what was life like for you know a, a teenager in New Zealand? I mean, it seems like the main thing that they would be doing would be work or school. What, 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 what were those two worlds like? I think by the 1880s, 1870s and 1880s, you actually had quite different experiences for two different groups of young people. So you had uh, the working class young people who were developing a young people's culture within the factories, which grew quite rapidly through the 1870s and 80s. And so their their world was a, was a, work, a work world, but a work world in which there were lots of other young people to muck about with. And then you had the middle class and upper middle class young people who were entering into secondary schooling in actually quite rapid numbers through that uh, particular time in, in the 19th century. And so their daily world was, was much more structured around the culture of uh, the classroom and extracurricular activities um, and the kind of fun that they'd have with their schoolmates outside of ours. So you had quite a distinction, I think, between... Uh, young people from different backgrounds in terms of what their work uh, life would look like. Uh, prior to the 1870s, of course, in, in um, New Zealand for young women, uh, they were often tied into domestic service, and so they were quite isolated socially. Uh, the factories, therefore, for the rise of factory work dramatically changed those young women's lives um, often for the for the better in, in many ways. So so class, I think, very strongly structured young people's uh, lives uh, during the nineteenth century, in particular. In the twentieth century, you had increasing numbers of working class young people entering into the secondary school system, uh, and so there was a bit of a convergence by the middle of the twentieth century. But but certainly, class was very important early on. Uh, what about race? What do we know about what was happening with um, indigenous Maori uh, teenagers? 
So there was very much a, a rural-urban divide in New Zealand society uh, prior to the middle of the 20th century. Most young Māori lived in the countryside, um, in rural areas, in, in villages, um, and most um, of the city inhabit, inhabitants were Pākehā or, or young people of, of European descent. And what was the, what, one of the things that was particularly significant about the, the, the middle of the 20th century in New Zealand, that the, the post-war decades in particular, is that there was a very, very rapid urbanisation of young Māori who moved into the cities to take up the um, the trades training schemes and the other kinds of um, growing factory work and so on. So, so you had a um, a convergence again of um, Māori and Pākehā young people's cultures through the 1940s and 50s. But but prior to that, uh, the lives of, of young Māori vis-à-vis young Pākehā were very much structured by that rural-urban split. Mm-hmm. One of the things that's interesting is that then, like today, technology was really important to, to these young people. Um, you talk about telephones, and then one thing that struck me was you, you say that the typewriter changed girls' lives dramatically. What, what was it about technology that, that made these uh, young people's lives change so, so drastically? Well, technology is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, it really is a kind of a driver of social change in that way. I mean, the, t- the, the typewriter was so important because it was part of the, the really rapid rise of clerical work at the start of the, of the, of the 20th century. And so the office and the, the culture of the office girl really became um, a thing. In the 19th century, um, most office clerks were male. By the early 20th century, um, most office workers were female. And so you actually had a kind of a um, a new kind of work life um, encouraged by the typewriter. Other forms of technology have been really important too. Transport technologies in particular, so the advent of the railways in the later part of the 19th century meant that young people could travel around independently um, over increasing distances. In the 20th century, the rise of the tram system in urban areas made young people's mobility much more uh, ready. You've mentioned the telephone phone and and by the 1910s young people were ringing one another up um, and um, chatting about all sorts of stuff uh, on on the phone so in a way as you say we associate teenagers with technology now particularly the rise of social media but in many ways young people's lives were very profoundly affected by these forms of technology going right back into the 19th century so again it's another example of the kind of historical continuities I think. As we get into the 20th century and especially into the 1920s, the jazz age, you know, a lot of things uh, may be familiar to listeners, some of the um, movements and some of the uh, things that, that youth were doing to challenge the norms of society. Uh, and yet you say that the jazz age was, was really a contradictory time for teenagers. Uh, why so? The 1910s and 20s in New Zealand were really interesting because you had two things going on. You had an increasingly strident moralism coming from more conservative adults, but those kind of social trends like jazz were also kind of really loosening up the kind of um, loosening the bounds of of, um, propriety. And, and, you know, the newspapers reporting um, in reporting young women's lives in particular in ways meant to scandalise their readers, what they were also doing was, was revealing the kind of more 
uh, freer kind of young people's cultures that were were taking shape at that time. Again, in, in terms of young women, you, you know, this is the period where the corset basically disappears to all intents and purposes, as does the chaperone, and, and that is replaced by very much uh, freer, more revealing clothing um, and young people's cultures, which again, interestingly, were, were being promoted by the churches, uh, the rise of Bible class and scouts and guides and youth groups and so on, um, in one way, an attempt to perhaps to channel young people's energies in ways considered wholesome, but on the other hand, what those kinds of organisations did was create a real uh, mass movement of young people uh, who were organising together as young people. So there are some really kind of contradictory strands in, in New Zealand history at that, at that point. One of, one of the most well-known New Zealand historians, James Bellich, talks about the time as a, uh, a, type, a time of great tightening, which in some senses was true, but in many other senses totally wasn't. So yeah, you've got both things going on at the same time, which is, I think, I found that quite fascinating to, to sort of think through. Tell us a little bit about uh, language. Um, you know, how did young people change the way they speak? How did, um, you know, you talk a lot about the slang that, that young people used. How did that change, especially um, in the 1930s and 1940s? Okay, so what happened in the 19th century, the slang was um, very English and in the early 20th century. So, you know, um, hard case and ripping and spiffing and all of that kind of stuff that you kind of expect out of the, the young, the very English young people's magazines. Um, it, it, by the 1920s, of course, 1920s, you had the rise of film. Uh, movies were pretty much silent until about 1928. What happened then, of course, uh, were the talkies, the, the, the uh, mostly American films with uh, speech, basically. And so what happened then is you have a real uh, diffusion of American slang into New Zealand. And I was interested in words like G and yeah, um, words that, that really came in in the 30s as young people were, were watching American films. So New Zealand, you know, had long imagined itself very much as a kind of a branch of of the United Kingdom, uh, but, but the American cultural kind of influences by the 1930s and 40s were becoming overwhelming. And so young people's language uh, really did take on a more American kind of hue at, uh, at that point. And, and what's really interesting, tell us how you knew that these young people were using words like G. What, what kind of archives did you, did you look at? Okay, so I looked at, um, I travelled around New Zealand and, and, and consulted either directly or, or, or indirectly about 50 different, different uh, libraries and archives. And what I did as I went through young people's diaries is I, I very much kind of mined them and, and, and wrote up lists of the kind of slang terms that were appearing uh, in those kind of diaries. So diaries were the main source for that. There were some newspaper reports, for instance, of young people fighting in the uh, cinemas in, in, in Christchurch in Auckland in the 1920s, and those reports would sometimes relay the language that young people uh, were using. But certainly, yeah, letters and diaries where young people are writing in their own language at the time. 
So in other words, one of the good things about those kind of sources is that when when you use oral histories, people are trying to remember back decades. When you when you use diaries and letters and newspaper reports and things that people have written at the time, you've actually got a clear sense of what words people were using exactly when they were using them, which meant I could actually go through and work out when the earliest mention of particular terms um, was, and yeah, G and yeah were very much 1930s words. The book is full of uh, gorgeous uh, photographs um, from all the decades and really, you know, gives a nice kind of pictorial representation of, of what you're talking about. Um, the book ends in the 1960s, kind of following the the kind of famous decade that we think of when we think about kind of teenager life. But it, in, in, at the very end of the book, you reflect on your own experience as a teenager uh, in the 1980s, I believe. Um, so how, how did kind of writing the history kind of change or shape the way you, you thought about your own upbringing? I think what was interesting is that I could sort of see some of the um, the history of, of things that were sort of notable to me as a teenager. So things like, you know, that was the era of the sort of death of the typewriter almost and, and, and the rise of the Walkman, um, thinking about how, you know, something like the Walkman, a quintessentially 1980s kind of thing, in a sense was the latest in a long line of, te- of technologies and, and, and music kind of technologies that, that that went back some kind of way. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? In the 1980s, uh, with all its magnificent music and big hair and everything, I mean, to me, that was that was the era where things became modern. But thinking about it, of course, um, for everyone growing up in preceding decades, uh, the, the decades when they came of, became of age were also the decades when things became modern for them. As someone who was a teenager in the 1950s said somewhere, you know, the 1950s were the decade where everything became colourful. And so so looking back on, on my own kind of um, adolescence and thinking about the way it kind of sat very much in a long historical context, I think I mentioned there somewhere that I, that I had noticed that the socks that we wear um, we're wearing at school as part of our school uniform were the same as the socks that were worn in in uh, the nineteen tens in New Zealand. And in fact, I read subsequently that our school socks, I think, were the only part of the uniform that went back to nineteen twenty eight when a high school was formed. So, uh, yeah, it was really interesting just thinking about even some of the little things and how they had a really interesting history, I guess. Chris, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Chris Brickle. He's from the University of Otago. His new book is Teenagers, The Rise of Youth Culture in New Zealand. It's published by Auckland University Press in 2017. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit